in our family, you know, we have a group of, of cousins that we've all seen our parents. We've all lost our parents. So we are we all wonder, you know, could it is it gonna be one of us? Uh, is it gonna be one of our children? I mean, we're all now in our fifties and sixties and some of us some of them closest and then and none of us are showing any signs, but so is it gonna be our children? The dreaded it Bernice Campbell of Phoenix is referring to is Alzheimer's disease. She has concerns so many of us have as we think or maybe try not to think about health issues that might loom around the corner for ourselves and our loved ones. Perhaps the scariest part is that definitive answers to those questions are still unclear. But Bernice is doing something to help researchers and medical experts change that. This is Banner Health's storytelling podcast, Bedside Stories, highlighting some of the most emotionally compelling experiences that take place behind the scenes in healthcare. Today, we bring you episode seven, Changing the Timeline. Bernice is not a doctor and she's not a researcher, yet she plays an incredibly important role in fighting Alzheimer's disease and dementia. She's not spending hours a day peering through a microscope or doing hard to pronounce biochemistry with DNA. Bernice is simply being Bernice. She's a 57-year-old grandmother and sports fan from Phoenix who likes to bake, travel, hike, and garden. Nevertheless, for just a few hours every month or so, She's taking part in research studies that aim to better understand, prevent, and treat the disease that has affected the lives of so many members of her family. So, have I lost any listeners? As soon as I said taking part in research studies, a handful might have tuned right out. I mean, we probably lost them for good just that fast. People often do the same when Bernice mentions this very topic. They also sometimes warn her that she ought to be really careful taking part in clinical trials, especially as an African-American woman. And that's because some ethnic cultures are skeptical about taking part in medical research. We'll briefly touch on some of the reasons why, but the goal in this episode isn't to dive deep into history's examples of shameful experiments. Instead, the idea is to start a realistic discussion about the importance of encouraging minorities to take part in research today so they can make a difference for those in their respective communities in the future. Bernice explains why she decided to get involved. I saw the uh, information post on Facebook about Alzheimer's research, and it kind of caught my interest because uh, just about three years now, this month, my mom passed away, and my mom had Alzheimer's, as as well as her older sister and two of her older brothers also passed away from and they had Alzheimer's so it really has affected our our family and my mom was a caregiver for one of her best friends um, that had Alzheimer's as well so I got to see that twice watching my mom care for her best friend who had Alzheimer's and passed away and then seeing it with her and then our extended family and just seeing how the disease starts and how it progresses and just how devastating it is. According to the Alzheimer's Association, older African Americans in the U.S. are twice as likely to have Alzheimer's and other dementias compared to older whites. Unfortunately, the Alzheimer's Prevention Registry reports that 80% of all studies involving the disease have to be delayed 
because too few people sign up to participate. After watching friends and loved ones succumb to this disease, Bernice realized she couldn't sit idly by without trying to do something. But just seeing it, and I, you know, I, I didn't want my children, my grandchildren, down the road, if, if something like that were to happen, you know, with me, and when I had a chance to be a part of research, to, you know, be a part of finding a cure for the disease. And that, that's why I got involved, because research leads to cures. But if you're not involved, if you don't step up, you, you can't be a part of it. And it affects different people differently. It's not, it's not just one blanket thing for everyone. So that's why I got involved. I started doing some research on Alzheimer's for this episode, and right away I was surprised. I had no idea the disease was discovered way back in 1906, more than 100 years ago. It's surprising to think humans have been dealing with this since the same year we figured out how to air condition a building, since the same year we discovered the existence of vitamins. Ever since, we've been trying to fight this disorder that destroys memory and other critical brain functions. More than 5 million Americans have Alzheimer's, and it's the sixth leading cause of death in the U.S. It's also the only one without a cure. Angela Allen is a clinical research program director at Banner Alzheimer's Institute in Phoenix and Banner Sun Health Research Institute in Sun City, Arizona. She's passionate about the need for people from all walks of life to get involved in research. The rationale behind people, different cultures, and, and we say ethnic cultures, I have to be more specific because culture means so many different things, diverse, diversity basically. But the rationale is because of the bio, we call it the biological variations, and that is the way the person's body is made. In other words, a drug that works for one ethnic group might not work as well for another. And some ethnic cultures may be prone to other health issues which factor into treatment. So unfortunately, researchers can't do clinical trials involving a bunch of people from all types of backgrounds and then apply the positive results to any patient who walks in the door. What ethnic cultures are especially needed to take part in research and, and why? Well, I can share with you uh, African-Americans for sure. Uh, primarily because they are two times likely to have some form of dementia and it's been identified. Uh, and if we have a, a particular group that is twice as likely to have some form of dementia, more than likely we are expected, expecting the African-American group to actually have, be involved in research. Another group is the Hispanic population. It's worth noting English isn't always the primary language for some cultures, so there's a chance of miscommunication or misunderstanding that can further discourage those communities from taking part. I asked Angela to explain some of the reasons why African-Americans, in particular, are more prone to the disease. One is based on uh, getting diagnosed late, um, because during the mild stage, you do tend to see that the person is forgetful. And as you know, the number one cause of some form of dementia, or the prevalence is age. As they get older, you'll see it more yeah, obviously evident. But they're forgetful, and so oftentimes people, African-Americans, will brush it off and say, you know what, it's just a person getting old, or spiritual involvement may be uh, there where they are obviously didn't live their life right, and so that's why they're doing that. So with those myths, unfortunately, the African-American uh, you know, uh, ethnic group is not so much involved. Mistrust, that's been in any research. 
Um, I can tell you, and with being a trainer in HIV, cancer, and now here we're talking about Alzheimer's disease, African Americans are not going to be the number one people in front line being tested for a disease, especially when you're asking them for blood, which is a huge issue due to the syphilis study, um, and then also, of course, mistrust with a minority, a majority, excuse me, healthcare provider. A third reason involves other types of diseases that may lead to some form of dementia, Angela says. For example, strokes are a predisposing factor of vascular dementia, and strokes are one of the leading causes of death for African Americans. But thanks to people like Bernice taking part in clinical trials, researchers have identified a gene that raises a risk for Alzheimer's. They can determine whether you have that gene by simply swabbing your mouth for a little saliva, then testing your DNA. Researchers also identified many of the genetic hereditary risk factors that play a role in developing the disease. We have the Alzheimer's Prevention Registry, led by Banner Alzheimer's Institute, that brings together leading researchers with people interested in taking part in trials. Banner Health also partners with the All of Us Research Program, which is part of the National Institutes of Health. Participants share health data that researchers can access to conduct all kinds of studies. This could help them see how different things like environment, lifestyle, and genes can impact health. Angela says she and her colleagues are working toward a future without this disease in our lives at all. 15, 20 years ago, if you really think about it, we didn't have a lot of medication out. Currently, we have medications that have allowed our individuals who have some form of dementia to slow down the progression of the disease. But just imagine if we didn't have anyone or no research, we would probably be at ground zero. So let's talk about why some racial and ethnic minorities might be hesitant to take part in any type of clinical trial. Historically, some past research involving some of those groups has done more harm than good. One example is the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, which was conducted between 1932 and 72 in Alabama by the U.S. Public Health Service. Nearly 400 impoverished black men who had syphilis were told they were receiving treatment for the disease when instead they were being studied while intentionally left untreated. That's one of the most commonly referenced examples of unethical trials from decades ago. Sadly, there were others, and something that awful can understandably resonate for generations. Here's Angela to share additional insight. So um, I'll just quickly just share with the Tuskegee. I was recently at a, attended a conference last fall, and it was known that the Tuskegee wave is kind of phasing out because there are a lot of African-Americans, even the baby boomers now, that are not really privy to knowing about the Tuskegee syphilis study, if you will. But what's interesting is we talk about the mistrust with the healthcare providers. We also talk about the miscommunication among the ethnic culture. So what we hear, we hear now is not so much of the Tuskegee study, but this, I just don't trust them. Bernice backs this up from her own experience. I did have that certain group of friends that, you know, that girl, I wouldn't be volunteering for none of that. Don't you know how stuff like that goes? I don't know why you want to be somebody guinea pig that... You know, I had that group, and uh, that's when I just, you know, turned that noise off and just disregard it because um, I'm not doing it to please anyone. I'm not doing it for their approval. You know, I look at my son, I look at my daughter. Um, and I think about, you know, 10, 15 years from now, you know, what their quality of life might be should something happen to me. 
or what my grandchildren's quality of life might be should my son or daughter um, have Alzheimer's one day. And, you know, if my participating as a minority in research helps, then that's what I care about. So is there an ideal number of people who could take part in research to make a major difference as quickly as possible? Of course, if we can get 100% of the people, that would be great. But I think as a percentage, because I don't have really a particular number, if we can get one-third of every ethnic group or diverse group to participate in research, then I think we would have done our job. We can't even, I can tell you right now, Corey, here in Arizona, it's it's quite embarrassing because I can tell you I couldn't even pilot a study in clinical trials with, particularly, I can't speak for all, but African Americans and Hispanics, because there's not enough. And piloting is probably about 5 to 10% of the population, if that, because we don't have enough people involved. Let's say someone's listening to this and thinking, maybe for the first time, about taking part. Here are some things Angela recommends you consider. Read about it online or either, even provide you know, literature that's here. If you do not feel comfortable with the person who's sharing the research information with you, ask for someone who does understand. I'll give you a perfect example, me. Um, the clinical trials team has asked me a couple of times to step out. Do you mind talking to this particular person? They may feel a little bit more comfortable with you sharing this information. So, Because you have that right, and a lot of people don't understand that. Um, and then once you have the understanding of what it involves, then you have a choice. Any research is voluntary. So you can step in, and at any point, if you so choose to remove yourself from the study, you can. The third thing is that you can also choose what type of researcher you want to be involved in. I don't want anyone drawing my blood, so I've chose not to be involved in blood drawing research. But if it takes something like swabbing my mouth, which by the way, that kit can be mailed to your home and actually put into, you know, obviously replaced back into the package and mailed to the designated area to determine whether you are involved or not, that's great. I mean, you don't even leave, you don't even have to leave your home. And then the last thing, ask them, what is this going to do for me? and my family, my community, and global society in the future. You always have that right to ask, how is this going to benefit us? And, and be expected to hear, we don't know right now, but you have made a huge difference. It's like in the African-American community, we tithe, which give 10th of our, our funds for, you know, obviously our church, where you're tithing in a different way. You're giving a percentage of you so that research can better understand what it is that they need to do for the future. Because when you tithe, you're tithing to have a better worship, fellowship, whatever, community, to have a better life so that your family can have this beautiful church and and have the resources that they need from that church aspect. The same thing with research. It's the same thing. And you can do it in so many different ways. Angela says some people who are on the fence about taking part often worry about privacy of their personal health information. In the U.S., federal law protects that information of all patients, including research participants. It's called HIPAA, the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, and pretty much anyone involved in the healthcare industry is deeply aware of these protections. There are extensive legal repercussions for even the slightest slip-up. There's even another layer of privacy and ethical protection for research called the Institutional Review Board. Even though the process of taking part in a clinical trial may sound complicated, for Bernice, it's been relatively easy. 
Her time commitment has involved about five visits to Banner Alzheimer's Institute, with most lasting only a few hours at a time. It was a lot easier than I thought it would be. Um, I'm retired, so my schedule is pretty open, but uh, even if I were still working, they made it um, very, very easy to work around a schedule. Uh, the times were very accommodating uh, as far as you know, the in-office visits, the scheduling of tests and things like that. Um, and everyone was very, very you know, beyond friendly. Everything was um, pretty voluntary. I mean, there was nothing that they said, you have to do, you have to do, you have to do. Um, they explained everything really, really well. Um, they, you know, everything was to your, you know, comfort level. If, if you're uncomfortable with anything, let us know. So there was, I never felt, I don't know, bullied into doing anything that I didn't want to do. You know, I never felt compelled to give information that I wasn't um, comfortable with. And there was, there was, uh, I think, one component of the testing or things that, the, that, that I just didn't feel comfortable with. And I let them know, and they were like, they were totally fine with it. What I do like um, is that they get your, your, your PCP information, your, your primary care doctor's information, if you want them to if you want that information given which you had you can elect to have that done or not which I did because any tests that are done any medical any any tests that they do scans and all that if, if any if they come across anything abnormal anything that they see like whoa um, that you, they will give that information to your PCP you seem like a more of a practical thinker, just from my short term talking <laughs> with you, right? So, um, so this might this might be a weird question, but does it do you when you you know take by taking part in research? Do you feel in some way that that sort of like brings you closer to your mom in some strange way at all, or is there, or do you not really think in that terms? Like, I wonder for me if I were in your shoes, if I would feel like, well, in a in a way, I'm like sort of giving back in their honor, you know? It does, you know, it does, because my mom was. My mom was a real giver. Um, I think in the in the spiritual Christian sense, um, I mean, you know, my mom was my mom really had that gift of service, and I feel I I, I do as well. My mom took care of my mom always took care of people um, from the time that I, as far back as I can remember, and I did as well. Um, and I still do. And that's a big part of my life. Um, it's something I got from her. Um, and I feel like, I kind of feel like I owe it to her to do whatever I can do to um, somehow help find a cure for this even if it's just my little teeny little mustard seed you know I mean it doesn't you know it doesn't seem like a whole lot in the grand scheme of thing but if enough people do it then it adds up 
it also would be interesting if you had like a family timeline, right? Take, you know, and then you looked at back here when it just this disease started impacting your family, whenever that started, right? Mm -hmm. And then moving forward over generations, right? You know, somewhere along the line. So let's say it starts with you, starts you know taking part in research to fight this. You know, it'd be interesting to see, you know, if we could look into the future and see, you know, where that research that you've contributed towards starts leading towards a cure or even medicine that helps to stave off, right? And then to look down in the future and see where your family has directly made a difference in fighting this would be fascinating, I think, to see. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's it's just uh you just feel like you have to do something. It you I think honestly you get where the disease just takes so much away. It just takes so much away from you that um, any little thing you can do to fight back, mm -hmm. no matter how um, no matter how small mm -hmm. it, it, it feels like it is, um, it feels like something. For Banner Health, I'm Corey Schubert, and this is Bedside Stories. To find out more about Alzheimer's research, visit banneralz.org or endalznow.org. You can also call Angela's research team at 602-839-6500. Do you have any thoughts on today's topic you'd like to share? We invite you to help us keep this discussion going on social media, and you might also consider subscribing to this podcast and leaving us a quick review. Until next time, thanks so much for listening. Bedside Stories is written and produced by Corey Schubert. Production support is provided by Jen Fenter, Eric Joe LaFuente, David Lozano, Charles Kelhopper, and Ralph Lopez. For more information about Banner Health, visit us online at bannerhealth.com.